welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Hi, everyone. This is, uh, this is so unbelievably fun, more than I realized it was going to be. It so, feels like we're in a park and uh, we all get to be together, and I'm just very grateful. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kent Carlson. I was, uh, I was one of the pastors around here for a few years, and, um, and now I work with our denomination. Actually, I just took a new gig. For those of you who don't know this, I'm uh, working here just in Northern California with all the pastors and Christian leaders throughout Northern California, of which Oak Hill is, of course, uh, uh, the very best church in the whole bunch. And um, I get to continue to work here, and I'm just having a blast doing it. And it's grateful. I'm so grateful to be uh, with you all today in this setting. It is. Uh, it's. Um, it's delightful. I, I was watching it last week, and I'm saying that is so cool. And uh, so I'm grateful to to be a part of this. We're finishing up today this wonderful study in the book of Jonah, where we have been reflecting on the God who misbehaves, which is such a great title for this series. Is, is that what it is, The God Who Misbehaves? Um, which is, I mean, just a wonderful thing to say about God. I mean, some may not like that, but I think it's a, a, a wonderful thing because he's misbehaving in terms of how we think perhaps he should be behaving. And so by misbehave, we, we mean that God does not act according to our desires uh, or, and our expectations. He takes his own counsel he operates according to his own nature and his own agenda. He doesn't check in with us first to get permission before he goes about doing the things he's planning on doing. He expects us to adjust to his agenda, not the other way around. He is uncontrollable. He's wild. Using uh, Narnian terms, he is not a tame lion. And our study together, the book of Jonah, has been a marvelous opportunity, and I've loved listening to the, the messages, to explore some of the implications of being a follower of a misbehaving God. We, we have God calling Jonah, just for a quick recap, to, to go to Nineveh and preach against the city because of Nineveh's great wickedness. And Jonah doesn't want to do it, so he runs away. And eventually he gets thrown into the sea, and he gets rescued by being swallowed by a great big fish and then vomited up on dry ground. And he's given another chance then to go to Nineveh to preach against the city, and he does, and amazingly, the Ninevites respond and repent, and there's this great awakening, and because of this response of re repentance, God decides not to destroy them. And in all of this, we see that God does not arrange his activity around the expectations and desires of human beings, even if not especially religious human beings. He keeps his own counsel. He cannot be managed. He is always up to something. The kingdom of God is always operative, always active. Again, using Narnian terms, Aslan is on the move. And here we get to the final chapter in this book that explores the misbehaving God, and Jonah is upset, and he's complaining, and he's pouting about God misbehaving. And wonderfully... And I think so kindly here, this, is, this, this last chapter is really gentle in many ways. God spends some time here with Jonah, and God attempts to get Jonah to understand some things about him. So we're, I'm going to read this uh, chapter. It's a, a short chapter, and I'm going to read it from Eugene Peterson's 
uh, message translation, mostly because the language is, here is a little more provocative and fun and robust. And so we're going to do that. So I invite you to stand and give your attention to the Word of God. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So, God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. God said, what do you have to be angry about? But Jonah just left. And he went out of the city to the east and sat down in a sulk. He put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. God arranged for a broad leaf tree to spring up. It grew over Jonah to cool him off and get him out of his angry sulk. Jonah was pleased. He enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up. But then God sent a worm. By dawn of the next day, the worm had bored into the shade tree and it withered away. The sun came up and God sent a hot, blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head and he started to faint. He prayed to die. I'm better off dead, he said. Then God said to Jonah, what right do you have to get angry about this shade tree? Jonah said, plenty of right. It's made me angry enough to die. God said, what's this? How is it that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you did nothing to get? You neither planted nor watered it. It grew up one night and died the next night. So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong to say nothing of all the innocent animals. This is the word of the Lord. You could be seated. I think this is just a delightful chapter of the Bible. It's so uh, human, and it paints such, as we think it through, such a beautiful picture of who God is. Nineveh has repented, and God forgives, and Jonah is upset. He knew God was going to do that. It's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Jonah wanted God to be something other than who God actually is. And yet the true God, the God who actually is, he shows up. And God does his redemptive, forgiving thing, and Jonah is upset because God misbehaved again. But notice, as I mentioned, how kind God is with Jonah here. He takes time with him. God attempts to help Jonah understand something about who God is. Now, we don't know if Jonah ever learned anything from this, took it to heart. Your guess is as good as mine. We don't know whether he was open to having his understanding of God changed. But we see here the kindness of God. As God reaches out to Jonah and tries to expand his very small and very self-oriented understanding of God. So let's take a uh, look at three truths this uh, chapter teaches us about God and his way of dealing with human beings uh, like ourselves. And I so apologize because I don't have this in the notes or in the, um, the app. Uh, um, I have no excuse for that. Uh, the, I'm a bum and I didn't get it in in time. But maybe you can 
think about them, write them down, or just ignore them and forget them. But at any rate, the first truth I would like us to reflect on is that God is not a tribal God. God is not a tribal God. It is clear from this book that Jonah either thought that the God of Israel, Yahweh, was Israel's private God, or that he felt that Yahweh should be Israel's private God. And he was upset when God acted in such a way that demonstrated that his love and compassion was ready to be poured out on all people. Jonah knew better than this. The very beginning of the Hebrew people, as it's explained and described to us in Genesis chapter 12, is that this new nation descended from Abraham would be used to bless all people. The consistent teaching of Scripture from beginning to end is that God is the God of the whole world, that all people are precious to him, that all people are objects of his love, and that his eternal kingdom is made up of people from every tribe and every nation and every ethnic group and every people group. The love of God and the mission of God is universal, knowing no boundaries, no borders, no favorites. If the nation of Israel is God's chosen people, then they are chosen for the purpose of blessing the entire world. Because God can never be contained. God can never be owned. No group, no tribe of people, no nation, no sect, no denomination, no single expression of God's people have the corner on what God is doing in this world and his work in this world. God's just bigger than all that. Jonah had a very tribal understanding of God. His God was small, or at least he wanted him to be small. Jonah wanted his people, in a sense, to own God. He wanted God to be their own tribal God. He wanted the Ninevites to be outsiders, less worthy of God's compassion and love. But that's not who God is. He's just bigger than all that. I don't know how many of you have had this experience in your religious upbringing. I suspect that a good number of you have. But I became an intentional follower of Christ toward the end of my undergraduate college uh, experience. Uh, in my childhood, I was raised in a traditional kind of liturgical higher church uh, tradition. Uh, but I did not, at least to my knowledge or my awareness or my experience, find God there. Although as I reflect back on my life, I now realize that actually the beginning of my life with God began there in my early church experience. I just didn't really know about it at the time. But when I became an intentional follower of Jesus in college, I became a part of a religious tradition that taught, and many of us are in this same tradition, that taught always implicitly, but often explicitly, that we were the ones who truly understood. We were the ones who had found the truth, or at least we had found the most purest way of understanding this truth, the way that was most aligned with how God wanted things to be. It wasn't that God wasn't active in other groups and other traditions. It's just that those other groups and other traditions were incomplete. They hadn't found the right way yet. They hadn't found our way. And this perspective, this mindset, began to shape uh, my, and I, I think many of ours, our understanding of God. It shaped how we understand his work in this world. God was our God. He was like us. 
that if he was on earth, he would go to our churches. He would care about the things that we care about. He'd be against the things that we're against. He would vote like we vote. Our country would be his favorite country. We thought that what we believed was the best way to describe who God is. We actually believe that. But isn't that crazy a bit? Isn't that kind of an absurd thing to believe? As Mike uh, mentioned, I think in the first week of the series, something about this. Whenever anyone in the Bible or outside the Bible meets the God who actually exists, what's their response? Can you imagine their response being, yep, just as I always thought you were, I was right all along. I had it nailed. I told everybody who you were, but they didn't believe me. Uh, they should have listened to me, but now they know. You're just like I thought you'd be. But what is really the experience when someone in the Bible or outside the Bible actually meets the God who exists? We fall on our knees, right? And we cry out, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. All my seemingly correct thoughts about you, God, were still small and utterly inadequate. And all my wrong thoughts were so embarrassingly wrong. So what this realization calls for is the character quality of humility. It is so likely, uh, it is so assuredly true, that there will be times when I am so very wrong about God. Therefore, I must be very careful when I speak for him or put words in his mouth or when I use him to bolster what I believe because God is not my own private God. He's really, really big. And because of this, we should be careful with our certainty about things. We need to remember when we think about certainty that certainty really has nothing to do with truth. Certainty is just a statement about me, about my intellectual or psychological state. And we all know that people can be certain about things that are demonstrably false, and they could be uncertain of things that are demonstrably, demonstrably true. We should never really want a God who agrees with us. We should never be concerned for making sure that God is on our side, for it is we who must learn to adapt our lives to God's ways. Now, this does not mean that we can never speak with confidence. And by the way, I think the word confidence is a far better word to use usually than certainty. But it doesn't mean that we can't speak with confidence, for the scripture gives us quite a few areas where we can be confident in our knowledge of God. For example, we can be confident that God often misbehaves and does not follow the rules that we lay out for him. We can be confident that God is good all the time. We can be confident that God loves people, all people, that he is especially on the side of the poor and the oppressed, that he calls us to love our enemies, that we are to be truthful, that we are to lose our lives in order to find them. All these truths and so many more we can have great confidence in and seek to orient our lives around. But some of us, and we should humbly admit this and resolve to rid ourselves of this tendency, some of us are speaking with great certainty about God these days. We are speaking with great certainty about his ways and his activity in human affairs. I've seen some of that certainty. I've read it. And some of it is demonstrably false. And we are in danger of creating a God 
in our own image who ends up looking just like us. And here's the danger. We may think we are having a relationship with God, but when you get underneath it, we are really just having a relationship with ourselves and our own thoughts about things. God's not a tribal God. Second truth I'd like us to reflect on, and it's obviously an elaboration of what I just said, but religious people need to be reconverted. And for the sake of definition, we're all religious people here, okay? Because we're going to church. That's kind of religion. We need to be reconverted. Uh, next week, uh, if you don't know this, and I don't know what's been said about it so far, I don't know if it's announcements afterwards, so Mikey and the team here at, at Oak Hills will be leading us as a church into this new series that gets at this concept of reconversion. Or as Mikey has been talking about it uh, to, to people, we need to be born again, again, and again, and again. So I won't take a long time with this, but the story of Jonah here requires us to at least reflect on this for a few minutes. Jonah was a religious professional, right? He was a prophet of Israel. God spoke to him, and then his job was then to speak this prophetic word to the people of Israel. But this prophetic word that God gave him for the Ninevites was not the main point of this book. When you, when you read through all the, so many of the other prophets in, in the Older Testament, you have whole books, chapters and chapters long that are in poetic form where the word that God gave to the prophet is then given to the, the people. Here there's none of this. The story of Jonah is a story about Jonah. But he has one message. It's pretty simple. It's, his message was, in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. You can kind of memorize that pretty quickly. No personal stories about his kids or his grandkids, no poem, no song at the end, no three alliterated points. Just a warning, in 40 days, God's going to overthrow Nineveh. Now, chances are, I suspect he probably said more than that when he walked around in Nineveh. But it's pretty apparent that his heart wasn't in it. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. And he was afraid the Ninevites would repent and God would forgive them, and that's what happened, and Jonah got angry because of that. Jonah needed to be reconverted. He needed to be born again, again, because his heart had been captured by that which was contrary to the way of God. Jonah wanted a God who behaved. He wanted a God who was more or less like he was, who looked at the world kind of how he looked at it. He wanted a God who he could count on to keep things more or less the way they were and not to shake things up. In some ways, uh, maybe this is weird to think about it, but I think Jonah's a pretty courageous figure here. Uh, yeah, he ran away, but he was running away from God, and not because he was afraid of God or afraid of the work he was asked to do. He just disagreed with God, didn't want to do it. He didn't want Nineveh to be saved. He wanted his enemies to stay his enemies. And then when he realized the ship that he was on was in danger of being destroyed because of him, he encouraged the sailors to toss, toss him overboard. He was no coward. He just wanted God to behave. He wanted God to be like him. He wanted God to reinforce and celebrate the perspective he had on this world. He wanted God to be on his side. Jonah had to be reconverted. I think we are in a season. And uh, Stephanie got into this in the prayer uh, beautifully, I think. I think we're in a season where religious people need to be reconverted. I work with pastors and Christian leaders throughout Canada and the United States. And I just want you to know, and I think some of you feel this already, 
things are not going so well these days uh, in our churches, especially in our country. I speak with pastors every week who are ready to quit, who are quitting, who are discouraged, who waken up in the morning saying, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Some who are borderline suicidal. And a lot of that can be traced to all the conflict and dissension in our churches. Impossible demands being placed upon these Christian leaders, no-win situations. And it's not like, and they know this, it's not like they're without blame. We're all complicit in the kind of consumeristic ethos of the religious environment in our country. But you can imagine a church being like a tube of toothpaste. And when the squeeze comes on, when things like the pandemic comes along, racial unrest, political fighting, fire and smoke and financial hard times, when all these external pressures come along and squeeze, what comes out of the tube is not something new. What comes out of the tube is what was in the tube all along. The external pressures, the pandemic, racial unrest, political fighting, financial issues, all that. They don't cause the mess. They just expose what was already in the tube, what was already in us. And I hasten right here at this point because Oak Hills is obviously my favorite church. Uh, I affirm you all here at Oak Hills. I know the leadership here. I know the people here. Um, I know you have managed. I've watched it from the outside and in intimate conversations with many. You've managed this time of stress with grace and maturity. And you've done a really, really good job. Uh, I'm working in churches and all over both countries where I'm do we're doing triage all the time. And pastors are just counting the days before they can quit. And it's not happening here, so I want to affirm you. So if you have overly sensitive conscience, uh, take what God has for you, but don't feel bad. Oak Hills is, is doing great. But the world is watching the churches during this time of stress. The world sees the conflict and the infighting and the smallness, the pettiness. And many outside the church are forming solidified views of the church during this time as something that they will never, ever want to be a part of. And young people are leaving the churches in droves. And there is only one answer to all this. We have to be beautiful. We have to be beautiful. We have to demonstrate the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst. We have to demonstrate an alternative way of living where we are following the way of Jesus, where we are not simply being like everybody else and adding to all the antagonisms of this world and throwing stones but rather we are becoming an alternative community who are living out the Jesus way in beautiful ways. We need to be reconverted. And all of us need to be reflected deeply, no matter what our perspectives are, need to reflect deeply where we have been shaped and formed by the arguments and antagonisms of this world. All of us need to be deeply attent uh, attentive to where we have strayed away from the way of Jesus and where we need to be reconverted. The turmoil of this past year, and who knows how long it will continue on, has the potential, if we are responsive and humble, of being a great gift. 
that only if we are deeply attentive to where we have strayed, to where we have believed the lies of this world, to where we have added to the antagonisms and the stone throwing and the name calling, it is crucial for the church to be reconverted and to demonstrate the beauty of the way of Jesus. One last truth before I close, and that is this very simple but yet so wonderful truth that God cares. God cares. And if that is true, that God cares, that changes everything, doesn't it? Changes everything. God goes out of his way with Jonah in this last chapter to try to teach him that he cares. He cares about this world. He cares about his enemies. He cares about our enemies. There is with God no other. There is no group of people who are in and another group of people who are out. There are not those who deserve God's love and those who deserve his punishment. The Ninevites were a violent and wicked people, and yet God cared about them. But as I reflect on this, and maybe some of you will join me, I also have been a violent and wicked person at times in my life. But I have always been an object of God's love. As Solzhenitsyn said it, if it was only so simple as to divide the good people from the bad people, but the line dividing good and evil runs through the heart of every human being. We all need to be saved. We all need to be rescued. Jonah wanted the Ninevites to be punished. He thought that was justice. Jonah understood justice in a narrow way as what is referred to as retributive justice. In other words, according to retribution, someone has done something wrong and they need to be punished. So if you do wrong, you are to be punished for it and in a sense forever marked by that punishment. But God, as the scripture clearly teaches, is always on the side of restorative justice because sin and crime is never just an individual thing. It doesn't just harm me and my soul. It harms relationships, community, it harms shalom in this world. And so healing is needed for true justice to be realized. And so what God is about, he's about restoring lawbreakers and sinners back into fellowship with himself and with each other. This is what beats in his heart, not punishment, but restoration. The entire story of Christ teaches us this. When you think about the Bible, the Bible is written by oppressed marginalized, exiled people writing to oppressed, marginalized, and exiled people. It is so hard, actually, to interpret the Bible when we interpret it from a place of power and control. Throughout the prophetic witness of the scriptures, we see God continually responding to and standing up for four categories in the Older Testament, the widows, the orphans, the stranger or the immigrant in the land, and the poor. Today, we could just continue to expand that by talking about refugees, migrant workers, the homeless, the elderly, the unborn, the incarcerated and the formerly incarcerated, the mentally and physically impaired, single parents, uh, veterans with PTSD. Anyone who tends to be ignored or put outside. The list could go on and on. And God takes Jonah aside here and very kindly and patiently says to him, you're all upset about this plant that you had for a little while, now it's gone, and you had nothing to do with it. 
but I care about the 120,000 people in Nineveh who are lost, who don't know right from wrong. You know what? I care about all the animals too, those precious animals. I care about them. They matter to me. The book of Jonah, and especially, particularly this last chapter, is a beautiful picture of the nature of God. He cares about people, all people. He cares about animals. He cares about life. And perhaps the best thing we can do to honor this beautiful picture of God is to notice whenever we objectify another human being, when we call them a name, when we diminish their dignity, when we see them as an other, when we cast them aside, whenever we stereotype them, whenever we consider them an enemy worthy of contempt or ignore the sacred image of God in them, whenever we are tempted to do any of these things, perhaps the most powerful and redemptive thing we can do in the world today is to simply stop and to care and to join with God in the little details of our lives and in the process be about the restoration of all things. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Spirit, I am so grateful for this uh, group of people, this community of faith, these who have given themselves to walking the way of Jesus. And we are so thankful today for the gift of life and the gift of your word and the challenge to be an alternative community in this world who is desperately in need of you. And so we pause now and ask that you would reconvert us. You would bring us back to your way. That what you wish us, who you wish us to be, would be the driving focus of our lives. And we would be given over to the way of Jesus in this world that desperately needs those who live in this way. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.